Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where you'll find broad topics, an unconventional dyad, and one shared goal. Educating ourselves through challenging and engaging conversations. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to having discussions that are real, raw, and unpolished. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode on the Unconventional Dyad podcast. Today, we have Dr. Laura Knutson on the podcast. Dr. Knutson's specialty is family medicine, specializing in gender-affirming hormone therapy and transcompetent care, eating disorders, gynecological health, contraception, and minor procedures at the Indiana University Student Health Center. She is the founder and current chair of the Gender Affirming Care Team at Indiana University Student Health Center, which is a new care team that was established a few years ago. She attended medical school at the University of Minnesota's Medical School and her residency at the University of Utah's Department of Family and Preventative Medicine. She enjoys spending time with her partner, Jason, who is a faculty member, a newly tenured faculty member at Indiana University, and her two children, aged nine and four. We cover a lot of different topics today, and I want to highlight a few of them. We talk a little bit about her journey into creating the new position, the gender-affirming care team at Indiana University, and we talk about her passion and interest in the LGBT community and the importance of LGBT-specific care. We also talk about gynecological issues and the importance of specialized care for people who identify as women. We also talk about being a parent and co-parenting and what that's been like for her. I think that you'll find our conversation really playful and fun. I find Laura to be really delightful and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Laura and I are so excited to have you on the podcast. Before we get started, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe share parts of your identity that you think um, are important for our listeners to know about? Yeah, thanks, Carly. And thanks, Laura, for having me on the podcast. Um, my name is Laura Knutson. I use she, her pronouns, and I uh, am a physician and a spouse and a mom and a friend and a human, <laughs> um, and I identify as a woman, a cisgender woman. Um, I'm a physician at a student health center at Indiana University, and there I am part of a team called the Gender Affirming Care Team that offers multidisciplinary gender-affirming care to people. It's a pretty self-explanatory name. So I prescribe hormone affirming, um, hormone therapy for gender affirmation and then coordinate care with therapists and um, health and wellness professionals as well. And then I also do a lot of gynecologic care at the Student Health Center. Um, and I'm kind of learning about how to combine advocacy with medicine, which is something that's really been interesting for me. And then I do a lot of eating disorder work as well. And that's something I had done before I came to the Student Health Center two years ago. And prior to the Student Health Center, I had been working in the community of Bloomington, Indiana for about six years. And before that, I had worked at a low-income um, health center in um, Ogden, Utah for two or three years. So I've had a, a couple different experiences in medicine. It's been fun. 
Um, and outside of that part of my life, which does take up a fair amount of time, but there's, there's more to life than that. I, uh, I like to goof off outside and I like to, I've started taking violin again when I turned 40 and that was really fun. Yeah. It's been interesting. Um, and I like to run and I like to, I, I kind of like knitting and um, reading when I can. So there are a couple other things we do too. Yes. It is really nice to hear that uh, professionals like yourself have a life outside of their professional identity. So yeah. it's really nice to hear that. Nice to remind myself about that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we all need to remind ourselves of that yeah, sometimes. Definitely. Yeah. Laura, can you share a little bit about your journey into medicine? What got you interested in medicine? And then from there, we can kind of talk about kind of your specialties. Sure. Yeah. So my, I come from kind of a medical family. My father is a family medicine physician and my mother is a physician's assistant and her father. So my maternal grandfather um, was a family medicine physician too. And so I kind of grew up having an, an internal eye sort of into what that, what that meant and sort of, it's sort of expected in our family that everyone sort of does something that's of service to humanity um, and when I was 10 years old, my mother actually hadn't done medical professional uh, training, but when I was 10 years old, she started on the road to becoming a physician's assistant and she was really passionate about it. And now that I have small children, I actually am dumbfounded by how hard she worked and how much fire she had to have to, to do that. Uh, it's, it was a huge turnaround. I think she'd been a drama major in college and, hadn't, you know, hadn't really pursued that line of thinking. Um, And then she just went for it and she became a physician's assistant in the first physician's assistant program class from the University of Iowa and, and is a phenomenal physician's assistant. So I really got to see um, that perspective and, and see how passionate she was for medicine close up. My dad's really a great doctor and he's passionate too, but that was kind of always just his job. And so I really got to see my mom turning towards that. So as I was growing up, I kind of always thought I would either, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer, because apparently that's, those are the only two choices I had. And uh, when I got to college, I majored, I double majored in English and biology, because I really liked English. And I knew I had to buy a major in biology if I was going to go to college, um, and then go to med school. And I delayed my journey into medical school, actually, because I just felt like I wanted to be sure I really wanted to do that and not just do it because it was the next step. I think it's easy for a lot of people of a certain social class to just do the next step. And I'm in that social class. So, you know, the next step after high school is college and the next step after college is graduate school or medical school. And then after you do that, you do residency and then you become a doctor and then you get married and then you have children and then you have a house and then you have cars and then you die. (laughs) And I didn't want to do that. So I did a year of being a waitress and, I went to massage school and tried that aspect of healthcare, which really has informed my medicine um, and realized during my time in massage school that I really liked connecting with people, but I also really liked um, a lot more the detail of the anatomy and a lot more the detail of how things connected. I was frequently asking why things worked and people couldn't answer always. Um, and I really liked being in charge. There were a couple of times people would come in and tell me what their doctor was doing. And I was like, I don't think that's right. I want to, I want to be in charge and tell them what to do. So, so that was an interesting observation. So I applied to medical school. Um, and then through medical school, there were still a couple of times that I was not sure it was what I wanted to do, but I always knew that connecting with people was the big motivation for why I was doing this. Um, 
The other thing that happened was when I was in college, I did a lot of public health work in the summers. Um, I had an amazing scholarship that gave me, it felt like a huge amount of money at the time to kind of do whatever I wanted to. And I had a relative who was doing public health work internationally. So I spent one summer in Kenya working with a non-governmental organization there. And honestly, I just took up resources and learned about what it was like to be a white 19 year old idiot in Kenya. But I also learned a lot about like what public health is and what it does and what it doesn't do and how white public health kind of comes in and inserts itself on a lot of cultures and and saw that without really naming it very well. And then when I, uh, the next year I went to the Philippines and spent some time in the Philippines. And that was a really different experience um, because it was more of a community-run non-governmental organization. And I got to spend some time um, like in communities, like living with families and stuff. And that was really great too. So I got to see a really broad aspect of what healthcare can do and, and how health is a community and a personal interaction. And, and they're not just, you know, it's not just giving someone medicine. Um, and so I think that that really informed my decision to go into family medicine. I really liked obstetrics and gynecology. I think I thought it was really cool, but I just couldn't think about pinning myself down to one square foot of the human body and 50% of the human population. Mm-hmm. And, and it seemed like really a narrow scope. Um, there wasn't a lot of, of discussion about the communities surrounding the people who were having the pregnancies and, and the gynecologic surgeries and things. And I, and I felt like family medicine really addressed that better. So that's kind of how I ended up in medicine in general, sort of my family background. And I think family medicine was informed by, by the connection with people that I really enjoyed in my massage practice, but also by that broader concept of what medicine was from, from public health in, in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then medical school was, you know, um, in Minnesota, I did a, a rotation called RPAP, which is Rural Physician Apprenticeship Program in Minnesota. It's a unique program to the University of Minnesota. And that in that program, I was kind of the only medical student in a town for nine months. And I went and lived and worked in this really small town, Winona, Minnesota, which was great. And do you hear my accent come out there too? Minona, Minnesota. Um, <laughs> And so I was the only medical student there. So I got a lot of firsthand, you know, up close experiences and longitudinal experiences where I got to kind of see how community works and how important it is to know what what someone's workplace is like and what someone's home life is like and how far it is to the grocery store from someone's house. Um, And and that was a nice perspective that kind of helped me understand what family medicine could be, too. You know, it is refreshing to hear you talk a little bit about community healthcare and Mm -hmm. the importance of thinking more in terms of a community rather than very individualistic ideas and, and health. So it is refreshing for you to kind of talk about that and your interest in that. Yeah. I think that's lost in America, particularly. I think that's been, I mean, we've unfortunately seen how that's been carved out and kind of hollowed out in the last few years. Um, You know, that, that you, some of the biggest things in, in medicine have been on a community focus. I mean, nitrogen fixation, so we have food, water cleanliness, so we have water, immunization, so we don't die of dumb diseases, understanding fecal oral transmission rates, so we don't die of dumb diseases. I mean, these are all community-based, and they they only work if everyone in the community does them and contributes to them. And I think that's, that's something that we lose when we think about the 
the amazingness of medicine because we think more about like, you know, well, the cardiologist fixed my heart, um, but we don't think about what went into all that beforehand. Um, you know, how was your diet? How was your movement? How was your stress level before you needed your heart to be fixed? Mm. And so I, I like thinking of things in a whole, a whole manner. And I think that's how I perceive my patients too, as I try to think of them as whole people in, mm-hmm. in context. Yeah. I would be so curious to hear what you have to say about COVID-19 <sighs> after everything uh-huh. you said about community and all of that, I'm kind of wondering how maybe the lack of focus on community is contributing to some of what we're seeing nowadays. I think there is some of that for sure. Um, I got a master's in health journalism and worked in SIDRAP, the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. So COVID's sort of been a really interesting thing for me to see, not just as a medical professional, but with that background, because I kind of had some, I worked on like pandemic preparedness um, when I was doing that work. And what was it, what's been interesting to me is, it seemed like when I was doing that work in the early 2000s, you know, we'd had we'd had swine flu and we'd had, um, I think Ebola had come out once, but not the big outbreak that everyone was scared of. Um, and there, you know, there've been some other little outbreaks. It was sort of well known. Everyone knew we were going to have another pandemic and, and public health seemed to be something that everyone seemed behind, but I was, I mean, that was from my perspective. And I think as we've gotten to be a much more individualistic culture and a much more polarized culture, I think we've lost the ability a lot of times to see outside of our own bubble. Um, And that has really changed how we think about ourselves. Also, we just don't have a very community focused, our lives just aren't very community focused anymore. Um, I live in a neighborhood where a lot, it's a very privileged neighborhood, but you know, we all know our neighbors and we all do a lot of things to try to help each other out. And I think that's a really unique situation. I don't think that happens very often. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I, you know, we use cars a lot more. I think people are getting really segmented politically um, or just in terms of how they consume their, their media. I think their media is really segmented. And I think we're all, you know, I mean, our phones are very honed in and it's hard to see outside of that. Um, and there's pluses to, a community, but, you know, I mean, I think people also are creating their own communities too. So I really have enjoyed that. I mean, there's, it's easy, I think, to look back and say it was all better way back when, but it wasn't. I mean, a lot of people were left out of those neighborhoods where people, you know, black people were not welcome in neighborhoods where everyone was walking around with a white picket fence and a dog and their 2.5 kids. And, you know, trans people were not welcome at the bowling league. And so I, I, I I struggle a little bit with not wanting to get caught up in the idea of nostalgia for a time that was, because I think we have some really great things in the time that is, but I do feel like the lack of a sense of community, the lack of a sense of responsibility for your neighbor, your fellow human has really contributed to how badly COVID has gone in, in America and how people are construing public health. And just the fact that we have allowed public health to be hollowed out in general is kind of interesting that I think we look for quick fixes in our culture and and don't really do a very good job of investing for the long term and looking for um, 
looking for prevention. I think that's really, and that goes contrary to, I think, human nature. I mean, if you think about human nature, we generally are looking for things that feel good now. And it really is hard to save up in <laughs> the long term. And we're looking for people that feel easy to be with. And it's hard to love. It's hard to love the person that you don't understand. So I, I understand why this is happening, but it does. It does make me sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Laura, I'm, I'm wondering about your interest in the new position that you've created at the Tell me if I'm saying this right. It's the Indiana University Student Health Center now, yeah. right? They changed yeah. the name. They changed the name. Yes. Can you tell me what it was like to kind of form your own program at the health center and really what that's been like for you? I, I kind of fell into it. Um, <laughs> I feel I feel like I sort of fell into it. I'm, I mean, if I look back on it, I think there's probably been a lot of work done that I'm not giving myself or other people credit for, but it feels like it just sort of fell in. So when I came, when I started at the health center, um, I came in knowing that I was going to do eating disorder work and I came in knowing I was going to do a lot of gynecology work. That's kind of why they hired me. Um, and one of the physicians who had left had been doing some prescribing for people who are transgender, discontinuing hormones that had been started elsewhere. And, um, so I inherited one or two of her patients and I was talking with a couple of as I went around the health center and met people, I was talking with the pharmacist and I was talking with a couple of the mental health professionals um, and mentioning that I was going to take over these patients. And they all said, Oh, that's great. And when we talked about that, I realized how nice it would, I was realizing how nice it would be to be able to chat with them more about that. Cause I, I mean, I've, I've had some experience in residency and, and my other two practices prescribing hormone therapy, but I certainly wasn't an expert. I certainly didn't have a ton of experience and I wanted to draw on the experience of my colleagues in in other disciplines. Um, So I had put down um, soon after my first week, I think my first, after my first week, I wrote down like a five-year goal list. And on, on the five-year goal list was I'd like to create eventually in my dream castle, create a, a multidisciplinary gender affirming cares, you know, clinic. And we have one kind of like that for eating disorders already at the health center. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I think people understood and had seen before, and it it didn't seem insurmountable there. Like it would, if I was building from nothing. Um, So I I mentioned this briefly to my, my boss one day and she was like, great. Do you want to do that? Like, you know, next week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so I really have to give a lot of credit to my, to my administrator, my boss, Beth Rube, because she, she was just like, sure. Do you want to like have help setting that up? Like, do you, I mean, should we take time out of your schedule and do you want me to like connect you with anyone or, and like, should, do you know, you probably want the conference room. I'll reserve the conference room for you too. Like she just sort of like made it really easy. And then I just reached out to a couple of people and people reached out to other people. And then we, started having meetings in January. I started in September. We started having meetings in January to kind of formulate what we wanted and how we wanted it to look and who should be involved and who shouldn't be involved and um, what our model was and what kind of standards we were going to use. And we were ready to open open the clinic officially in, in September of 2019. And the first year we've done 45 to 50 new starts for hormone therapy, um, which is really great because those are, those are lives that I'm, I'm hoping are really, really um, enhanced and enriched because people are finally able to live concurrent 
congruent with their identity that they feel inside. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to have a specialization within a health center like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know of many other universities, at least that I've been a part of, that do that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the importance of that specific specialization rather than having students maybe going outside into the community for that therapy? Or can you just talk about the importance of it? Yeah. At a university health center. I think, I think there are a bunch of different parts to that that are important. So, so one part is, is just the signal that it gives to everybody that, that we see transgender people, we see gender diversity and we value it. And we think that it's important um, to honor and value that. And, and I think that has spoken really loudly to a lot of people um, in a really positive way. Um, so that's, that's been really great. And the other thing that I think is really important is that um, it makes it much, it lowers the barrier to care um, by a lot. And that's kind of my, that's one of my, that's one of my like touchstones that I really try to work on is how can we lower the barriers? Because there already are so many barriers when someone's gender diverse, um, you know, our whole world's binary and, whatever we can do to lower a barrier to care, to make it easier for people who are gender diverse to get affirming care is, is going to be better. And, you know, stigmatizing something by sending it away, I think really makes that harder. So, you know, Bloomington's a small town and it's kind of isolated mm-hmm. in the middle of Indiana, as you know, Carly. Um, and, you know, it, and it doesn't have a super diverse healthcare setting. We have like one major healthcare provider in town and a couple of small private practices and that's it. Um, so if we were sending people away, they have to work really hard to get that treatment. They, have to, they either have to drive up to Indianapolis where there is a great resource there called the Ashkenazi Transgender Center. It's really wonderful and I work with them. I call them a lot when I have questions. Um, and, or, you know, or they have to work hard and wrestle to get into a schedule that's already packed of one of the few, thera- you know, people in town who are adept at doing hormone therapy. Um, and that's all through word of mouth. Those people aren't advertising. It's not on, you know, the web page of their practice. Um, so I think then, you know, there's a lot of, of, I would imagine fear and and worry going into that, that maybe this person doesn't really offer hormone care or maybe the front office staff isn't okay with this. Or, um, you know, I think that offering that specialized care in the health center makes it so much easier. I mean, you can just stop by on your way to class and see someone and it's on our website, you know, right from the start that we're cool with gender diversity. We support you and we're going to affirm you and, um, I think those lowering those barriers, especially during college, when college is such a stressful time, is really important. Because as you're, I, I mean, think about college just in general. I mean, you're kind of formulating your identity and you're figuring out what you want to do, and you're working really hard at this really tricky academic thing, and you might be wrestling with other things like relationships with your family and relationships with your friends and relationships with, you know, romantic relationships and then also housing. And this might be the first time you're living away from home or living with other people. And you might be wrestling with social issues with 
alcohol or drug use or finances. I mean, there are a lot of things that we are asking from college age students and to ask someone to also figure out how to get off campus and wrestle with a very, I mean, a, a very difficult healthcare system, no matter what practice you go to, healthcare is hard now. It's, there's very little time for doctors and nurses to advocate for their patients or touch in or call in. Insurance is tricky. Making an appointment can be challenging. Um, I think the role that we have at the health center just in general is very much to advocate for students because we understand what that's like. And we know, we know what those struggles are like. Um, and we try to step back a little bit from making it difficult to make an appointment. You know, we try to make it really easy. And then to be able to introduce gender diversity and care into that is really, I think it's really helpful. Have you come in contact with any specific challenges that, or have you faced any challenges over the last few years with that program? So surprisingly, I haven't had any outside. I haven't had any outside commentary on this, other than people saying "way to go." Um, I was kind of surprised by that a little bit. I was sort of waiting a little bit for some backlash, and I we haven't had any that I know of. Or if, if we have, it's gone to the administrators, and they haven't told me about it because they're nice and didn't want to bother me. Um, I've had a little, and, and generally people are pretty good. I, I always introduce myself whenever I see any patient by saying, hi, I'm Dr. Knudsen. You can call me Laura. I use she, her pronouns. What do you like to be called? What do what pronouns do you use? I ask everyone. And even people that I am sure have no idea what I'm asking about when I ask what pronouns I'm using, they're not angry with me or upset. They've never pushed back toward that. They might look confused or a little you know, like, well, I'm a dude. Okay. <laughs> so is it he? Do you use he pronouns? Um, but no one's ever been angry with me for that. I think the things that I've encountered mostly have been institutional. So, you know, insurance insurance companies were like, well, I'm not going to approve that code because this person's listed as male. So they can't have pelvic pain. Like, Well, they have a uterus, so they sure as heck can. So figure <laughs> it out and get back to me. Um those kinds of institutional binary things have come up a number of times, but those are kind of par for the course for this kind of care, unfortunately, until the rest of our society catches up. This might be a good transition to talk a little bit about, it sounds like your earlier interest in working with women's issues or you know, people identifying as women, specifically like working with that population. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your interest in that and really the importance of women's health? Well, I think, and I kind of say gynecologic health, even though it's a big mouthful, it covers a lot more people. I can't um, say that word very well. Maybe I know. I need to practice you can that just say gyne. <laughs> gyne health. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think I, th I think I have an attraction to working with the underdog. And I think in our society and in medicine, you know, a lot of times people who identify as women are underdogs. Um, and then we know that, you know, people who identify as LGBTQ plus are also underdogs. Um, so I think, I think that's been something that, that has attracted me a little bit. Um, but there's a lot, I think gynecologic care is really, it's really sensitive. I mean, it's a really sensitive issue. I mean, those, 
those parts of the body that we're addressing in that are very sensitive. And, and if you approach it correctly, you really can make things okay for people in a way that they've never had them be okay before. Um, when I had my first, this might be TMI, but you can cut it. When I had my first, you know, my first gynecologic exam, I had it with my mom's friend um, and, and partner. And she knew I was interested in medicine. And so she totally let me geek out. She gave me a mirror and we checked everything out. And she did my, my manual exam and she was explaining what she was feeling. And I was like, this is so cool. It was amazing. <laughs> and so, and, and then I would talk to my friends about this and they were just flabbergasted because they just gritted their teeth the whole time and hated every second of it and dreaded going back. And and I realized like, this is a really common experience that a lot of people who identify as women just have these terrible experiences with this huge part of their body and their healthcare that can really be, I think, empowering if you, if you can kind of be, um, you know, be empowered to, to take authorship and ownership of that. Um, and then in medical school, you know, I realized how little research we really know and how little we really understand and how, um, I had a couple of experiences with patients about, you know, where they'd had negative experiences and I just took a little bit of extra time or had an opportunity to have a conversation with them and realized how much that difference makes. And then also looking at the community part and the prevention part, you know, seeing for gynecologic care, how, educating someone about their vagina that, I mean, they can prevent yeast infections and urine infections. They can understand how to prevent pregnancy if they want to, that that's a huge, huge gift to have. And I think that was something I really felt strongly about. So I, I can talk about birth control till the cows come home. Cause I really like it. I would love to know more about kind of <laughs> thoughts on that. I think something I really want to mention here is Laura and I worked at a, a clinic, a medical clinic, and I have had so many patients where we sat down and we talked about, here's how to keep yourself safe. Here's how you can, you know, talk about safe sex sex practices with your partner um mm -hmm. you know you're concerned about an std okay let's get you tested let's go talk to your physician um so uh -huh. i think we've been in positions where we can maybe kind of help someone with that despite us not really being a medical provider we're able to kind of focus yeah. the attention on specific medical care but specifically around women's issues and you know issues around sex around pregnancy around stds um, yeah yeah and it's amazing to me how um, how difficult these conversations are for people um, in sexual relationships. Because um, I was kind of raised that like you have to be comfortable having these conversations before you start having sex with that person. Because um, like, what's the point of a relationship if you can't talk about, like why would you have sex with someone if you can't talk yeah. about how to make each other feel comfortable and have fun too. Um, but that's not the norm. And, and that's sort of, I still am surprised and saddened to realize that that's not the norm for a lot of people. So, I, I mean, I think one thing is to start talking about this with your kids now. Like my kids know what chlamydia is <laughs> and they're nine and four. <laughs> um, you know, we don't show them pictures or anything, but I, they, you know, they know that they know that sex, they know what sex is kind of, and they know, they know that the most important part about sex is that you feel really comfortable with someone and you can talk to them about anything and that you know how to help each other feel happy. That's the point. Um, and I think that that's missed by a lot of, 
of folks. So, um, you know, I, I, for, I like to ask people if they feel comfortable, um, talking about those things, you know, do you feel comfortable with your partner talking about condom use or other barrier protection? Do you feel comfortable with your partner talking about, um, contraception, if that's something that you are needing. And if they don't, then kind of exploring why that is and where that's coming into play and how, how they can have those conversations. Um, that's important. Um, and then I think, you know, for birth control, it, it, it's, it's amazing to me how little people understand. And that's, I think, partly from the abstinence only programs too, that people have in high school. I think a lot of Grownups would prefer to just never think about birth control and their kids or their neighbors or anyone, you know. Um, and so they just hand it off to high school and then high school said, just don't have sex. And then there you go. That's that's the training that we have. So, you know, with birth control pills, that that still is somehow the standard of care is birth control pills, which fail 9% of the time with typical use, which is a huge amount if you think about that. If you really don't want to be pregnant, then 9% risk is enormous. Um so I always talk first about long-active reproductive contraception. So an IUD or the implant that goes in the arm called Mexplanon and how safe and secure those are for contraception options um, and how private they are too. Um, so that if someone is in a safe place where they don't feel safe using obvious contraception that they can, they can use that, those two um, as well. And then, and then I like to talk to people about, um, you know, barrier protection and, and what that means to you and how, and COVID actually is really nicely segueing with this now, because we talk about, you know, if you have to make sure your bubble is closed and the same thing with sex, you have to make sure your, your sexual relationships, you know, if you're going to be closed or open and, and, and what that barrier protection does. So um, those are the things that I think. I really like to talk to you on an individual basis with people because it's so interesting what they may have learned or heard. Um, and it's interesting to me how many people just don't, don't know even what questions to ask um, to feel better informed. Laura, I, I see you as someone being very person-centered and someone mm -hmm. who really kind of really wants to form a relationship with a patient and, and, I mean, you'd probably know this, but that's really rare. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> that's really, really rare. It should not be. <laughs> Can you just share the importance of forming relationship with patients and really what that can do for their health? Well, I think just in general in the world, if you can see, and I'm not religious. So when I say this, it's a shortcut to me, but when I was always kind of raised thinking that the God in you needs to see the God in other people. Um, and God is a shortcut for spirit or highest, highest empathy or um, highest capability, highest potential. And, and I think, I think there's something good in everybody. And there's also something scary in everybody. And to recognize those potentials is really a powerful thing. Um, and I don't think that you will truly be able to have much of an understanding of where your 
patients are coming from if you don't have that connection, nor will they really understand where you're coming from. And sometimes that's important because you're often asking people to do hard things um, or things that are uncomfortable or different for them. And if, if I can ask someone from a place where they know I'm coming from a place of, of love or respect or admiration, or at least understanding and they at least feel heard, that makes a huge difference in terms of how comfortable they'll feel to ask me questions, how comfortable they'll feel to tell me if that works or doesn't work for them, um, how much they'll listen to me, how much they'll they'll get that I'm listening to them. Those connections, I think, cut through so much BS and have made it so much easier for me to really... um, I don't want to say see results because that makes it sound like medicine's all about getting a certain number, but have people be engaged in their healthcare and have, and that's the whole point. I mean, the whole point of medicine is you're relieving people's discomfort and dis-ease. That's the point of it. And if you, if you're just foisting instructions on people and giving them medicine, you're not really relieving their dis-ease. You have to understand why this bothers them and how and what's acceptable to them to improve or to change before you can even hope to start picking the right thing. Also, it helps me. It helps me feel better. It helps me. I'm not just making widgets. I mean, I get a lot out of that uh, relationship and I get a lot out of knowing that that little tiny bits of my happiness and my love for people are spreading out and hopefully helping someone else's day be better. I mean, I was the waitress who would cry if I gave a refill and someone said, thank you. So I mean, I'm just a sap, but it's good to be a sap because then everyone else can have a little sap too. And I think this, I mean, I think I can't, I've had patients come to me and they, weren't taking medication for years. And then their doctors never knew because they never felt comfortable telling them. And so they come to me and they'd be like, well, that doesn't actually work. I'm like, why not? Well, I don't take it. I'm like, why not? (laughs) You're just getting these pills and then throwing them away. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, why don't you take it? Well, it makes me sick. I'm like, tell anyone that? No, he doesn't listen. I'm like, okay, well, let's try something that doesn't make you sick, you know? that that's an amazing insight to have to that person. And, and hopefully then if I ask them to do something really hard, like alter their intake of vegetables and fruits or think about being vulnerable with a therapist or vulnerable with themselves that, I mean, that that's really hard to do. And if they know that I love them, I think it's going to be a little easier for them to, to try it and be vulnerable with me. That power differential in medicine is so huge. And I think we often forget about it. Um, And not just in medicine, in any relationship where you're asking someone, I mean, you know, my hairdressers, I've had power differentials with my hairdressers where I'm like, I don't, okay, it looks great. Thanks so much. Bye. Cause they're in the chair and I'm in the chair and they're cutting with me. I I just want to get out of the chair. So I think recognizing that and, and having a human connection makes it in some ways makes it a lot easier. Um, but I am very grateful for all the lovely therapists that I've gotten to know who have talked with me about transference and counter transference. <laughs> so I understand about boundaries and how to work on that too. Um, 
Because I also have to remember that, you know, these folks are wonderful and they're great, but they're not going to come rub my feet when I'm dying and old. My, my kids will, hopefully. <laughs> That's why we have them. <laughs> that is a really good segue to our next topic. Um, Yay. You are a really busy woman and you are married, you have kids, um, your partner is also a now a tenured faculty member at IU. Can you share a little bit about what the journey has been like through COVID and parenting and being a partner? How are you managing? Yeah. Pretty well, actually, because we have so many privileges. I mean, we have two jobs that we can still do and could, could continue to do remotely, even at the worst time of COVID. And we have resources financially and we have resources socially. So I'm totally acknowledging that I have a million hundred thousand gazillion privileges that have made this a lot easier. Um, but that being said, it's not easy. So, you know, I think, um, so carving out time for self-care has been something that's been really important for, for both Jason, my partner and I, and, and we've, needed to remind ourselves and each other about that a lot and being super explicit about taking that time and giving that time freely has been important. Um, and that explicitness feels like overkill sometimes, but I think it really helps us um, to, you know, like I was doing this podcast, this I'm counting this as me time because I like to talk and I'm an, <laughs> I'm an expert. Um, you know, but I was like, hey, I'm I'm doing a podcast with Carly and Laura at 530. And Jason's like, I am giving you that time. to." I mean, it was ridiculous. But also, <laughs> it was very clear to us, like, this is my time today. I'm taking my time and he's given me my time. So tomorrow when he asks for an hour off to go play video games, it's very easy for me to say, absolutely, you should take an hour off to go play video games. And he does way more for his self time than just video games. That's just, <laughs> just an example. Of his I don't want him to feel like he's being pushed into a gamer <laughs> persona. Um, you know, oh, go hiking. That's better. We'll say go hiking. Um, if he takes an hour off to go hiking tomorrow, that's, that's easy for me to do rather than be like, well, I didn't get, you know, Time. So that explicitness is very helpful. And also I think modeling that for the kids, like they know that that's necessary and they hopefully will integrate that into their own relationships with themselves and their own relationships with their, with, if they have partners with their partners as they get older and with their friends. Um, so that's one thing that I think I hadn't been as explicit about before COVID and that's made it really clear. And then the other thing is being really explicit about family time. Like, sometimes just framing the time, even though it doesn't change anything about it, just makes it feel different and more special for us. So we never did anything on Sunday nights anyway, but to frame it as family time and family meeting, like makes it better somehow. And I don't, it, that explicitness seems so silly to me still. And I'm not a very structured person in a lot of ways, but that structure has really been helpful for us. Um, you know, parenting with two jobs and two, you know, two different people going into the relationship that's the core, which is my, my relationship with my partner, 
that's how I model our families. Like it's me and my partner at the cornerstone. We're, we're the most important part. And then the kids are kind of like little cute satellites that go around. <laughs> um, and they're important too, but I think having that model of like, we're the core and our time with ourselves is the most important. And then our time with each other is the next most important. And then our time as a family is very important. And the kids have time by themselves too. Those, all those importances of all those times just really were very highlighted when we were spending so much time together in COVID and had so many different stressors going on and so much different busyness. And I think they've always been important, but they got, they were really emphasized in the last six months. Um, and so being explicit about that time has been really, really helpful and being really explicit about our affections for each other and, um, you know, realizing we, Jason and I say this to each other all the time. We can't control anything. I mean, anything. The only thing we can control is that we love each other and we love our kids and that they know it. And that's all we can control. And just, it's very, it's very scary, but it's very freeing in a way to know that like we could all get hit by a bomb tonight and just completely go off in smithereens. And that's okay. Cause I love you and you love me and we love our kids and they know it. And that's the only thing we can control. That has been very freeing for us. We say that a lot to each other. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I am so inspired by this whole idea of being so explicit about self-care time, about, you know, you time. Um, it just, I know you said you don't really know why it's, you know, so important to be so explicit, but I think, I think what I'm picking up on is that you're really um, kind of labeling this as almost sacred time. Yeah. Like it seems very sacred. It seems it's not only important. It's like, yeah, it's just the sacred piece of your life that you're not going to um, push aside or ignore. And I think that's really powerful. Thanks. Yeah. And I think also like it's, labeling it makes me value it more like you know it's mm -hmm. it's okay for me to watch four episodes of the great british baking show I, right yeah best thing ever yeah. um if i'm explicit about if i'm not just falling into it because it's the easiest thing to do and i'm just lying there because mm -hmm. i can't get up off the couch but if i sit there and i say this is my self-care time i really need to see nadia win <laughs> then <laughs> I can do that. And then that helps me value that and not just feel like I, I'm just following into, you know, a, a pit of inertia. Um, yeah. And I, and I think making sure I've always wanted to make sure that I'm someone who happens to my life and not that life is happening to me. Um, and it's, it feels bad when life happens to you, but I feel like if, you feel like you're making your life somewhat the choices you want to. I think maybe that explicitness helps that too. Yeah. It just seems really intentional. Like you're living this very intentional life. Well, thanks. That's <laughs> I'll take the credit. I'm not sure I deserve it. But I'll take it. <laughs> Going off of that, Laura, I'm wondering from here on out, I don't know how long we're going to be in this pandemic. And in fact, Wisconsin is not doing all that great right now in the pandemic. But if we look out into the future, I don't know exactly how far out you want to go with this question or this answer, maybe a year, three years. Where do you kind of see yourself going? What do you want to see happen? Where do you want to go next? Um, 
I'm doing the math of my kids' ages in three years because <laughs> that does impact this decision. Um, well, I think in three years, I would like to see the gender affirming care team be um, much more self-sustaining right now. I'm one of the only people doing, I'm the only person doing hormone initiation and, you know, I'm the one sending, typing up the minutes and it, there's just a lot that's me and that's fine. And I want it to, you know, thrive. So I'm okay with that. And it's not that much work, but I do want it to be self-sustaining. So I know if I get hit by a bus, it, it'll keep going. Um, I'd like to have, we're, we're working a lot more on advocacy. I'd like to have Bloomington be known as a, not just IU, but Bloomington be known as a place where gender diversity is recognized and, and not just accepted, but really like asserted. Um, and, and where it's easy to be someone who's, who's gender diverse and have that, you know, hopefully expand into Indiana, which is a state that continually surprises me with its potentials yeah. of different things. Um, I, I think there's a lot, this is a really ripe time for, for people to start new paradigms in their heads. When you're in a space of great discomfort, there are, there's a great potential for growth. Yeah. You have to, till the soil and turn it over before a seed can grow. And I think that this, what we can do with the aftermath of this, of this pandemic is a lot of people are going to be in a lot of different spaces. And with that different space, there's a lot of opportunity and potential to, to see new potentials and new, new growth. Um, so I'm hoping that gender diversity in medicine is just going to really take off. And I hope that I have the privilege of being, being part of spreading that good, good news and that good work. Um, personally, our kids will be a lot more independent. So like, man, just walking out of the house and going on an evening walk with Jason is going to be amazing. <laughs> and it's going to happen. It's going to be cool. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to like have a good vibrato in my violin and be back to half marathon length and running again. <laughs> it's going to be a while. Um, yeah. I, you know, I'm really happy with my, with my job. I think the advocacy part is something that is really, is really interesting to me and has a lot of potential and a lot of excitement. We've got, some medical learning happening here on a lot of different aspects of healthcare that at IU that I think we could really tap into helping athletic trainers and speech mm -hmm. therapists and mental health therapists and psychologists. And, you know, there are a lot of different cornerstones of, of medicine and healthcare that, that can really benefit from gender diversity and education about that. Um, so that's cool. And then maybe, you know, a sabbatical might be fun sometime in there. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. We don't, that depends on the pandemic, but. Where would you want to go? I don't know. Jason, Jason's got a couple of cool contacts and there's some in Germany. There's some in the Netherlands. I don't want to get in trouble by putting this out publicly because I don't know <laughs> exactly where. Um, but there are some neat, I think interna an international an international experience would be a really neat one for, I think, all of our family to, again, shake it up, get uncomfortable and have mm -hmm. some growth happen mm -hmm. from that. Mm -hmm. 
and, and hopefully in a good, a good discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have one more question for you. And this was perhaps this one's going to be a little bit bigger than the last one I just asked you, but over the last seven months or so, maybe a year, can you think of one lesson that you've learned, whether it's a professional lesson, um, a personal les- lesson, and really how that lesson has impacted you and how you imagine moving forward? So one thing that I've been really saddened and really delighted by is realizing that I am not the only one who thinks our healthcare system is completely and utterly broken. Um, I think for a long time, I kept thinking it was just my office or mm-hmm. just me caring so much about people or just, just the healthcare system I was working in or just the state I was in. And, and the outpouring over the last seven months of, of how many people in healthcare feel like they went into healthcare to help people and the entire system is literally working against that entire goal and that we are literally harming people with the system that we have set up, even people with good insurance. That is really, that's been really a double-edged sword because it, it it's, it's heartbreaking to realize that this is happening to so many thousands and thousands of people and millions of people across the country and, you know, millions of physicians across the country and millions of nurses and therapists and anyone involved in healthcare knows it's like a secret that everyone knows somehow. It's like, it's, it's like just a known secret that this is a broken system. And yet we all are kind of roped into participating in it and supporting it. Um, So I'm really hopeful though, in that sad knowledge that maybe with enough pushback and enough advocacy and enough, you know, people being involved in politics and um, I don't know, enough discomfort from this pandemic, the healthcare costs are going to be so enormous. They already are. I I think hopefully this will be a a time for, you know, a very fertile time for finding another, a, a solution that's a sustainable one and actually humane and actually promotes good science and, good healing and, and humanity. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential in, in our, you know, in our country to, to have that happen. And I really hope it will. Hello, Unconventional Dyad podcast listeners. We are so excited that you are joining the conversation with us. If you're liking what you're hearing and you would like to support the podcast, there are a few different ways to do that. We have a Patreon page now. So if you visit patreon.com slash unconventional dyad, you can support us through four different support tiers. You can also support us through the Anchor app. There's a support function and you can choose from three different tiers from as little as 99 cents per month. We really hope that you are liking the content so far. You can also check out our website where we post weekly blogs that you can comment on, and we hope that you join in the conversation with us. Let us know what you think.